Good morning, COV. It is my pleasure to worship with you this morning, with you and your family. And if we haven't met, hello, my name is Spencer. Um, I've been attending COV now for about three years. The first time I actually came to COV uh, was when I was checking out COV to be a church partner for CORE, a college ministry at Santa Clara University, where I was leading at the time. And I never left. And what I appreciate most about COV is the people. And I've never in my life been around people who so clearly identify uh, with Jesus Christ, put their identity in him. People that recognize that they are truly sinners saved by grace. So fun fact about myself is one of my favorite ways to explain the gospel is that I'm simply one beggar showing other beggars where the good food is, that I've tasted and man, it is good. And what I love about this metaphor is the perspective of the Christian as the beggar. You're lowly, you recognize that you're hungry in need and you're a sinner. And yet you've tasted that the Lord is good and all you want to do is share him. So I wanted this morning to start off letting you know that I'm just a beggar, another sinner saved by grace, sharing the goodness of the word of God with you today. And first off, I'm a sinner. I've ignored my parents because I was in the middle of a video game. I've told inappropriate jokes. I've put my identity in many things other than Christ, being fast at recess, good grades in school, being the golden boy, girlfriends, job, money, leadership positions, etc. And I've often preferred reading about imaginary worlds than being present in this one. I'm more selfish and prideful than any of you know. And last but not least, I totaled my grandma's car. So luckily for you and for me, Jesus Christ died crucified on a Roman cross for my sins. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death. And through no merit of my own, that same power has given Spencer, the sinner, a new life. I have tasted that grace through parents that raised me up in the way that I should go. These unclean lips have been able to share the gospel outside frat parties and now before you all. God has revealed through his word and from my amazing community the ways that my identity has been in his creation rather than the creator. And I have put down my books enough to serve in college ministry at Santa Clara and now in Bible studies at COV. And let's not forget, my grandma got more back from insurance than she initially paid for her now totaled car. Now that's grace. Okay, but enough about me. Today, I have the privilege of sharing with you from First Peter. And man, I've tasted it and it's so good. So bow your heads with me and let's pray before we jump into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. Lord, I just pray that today you just remove any distractions, Lord, that you'd keep us focused on what you have to say. Lord, that your words would come out of my mouth, and not my own. God, that you would teach uh, people what um, you'd want them to hear. Lord, and that you would get all the glory. In your son's holy and precious name, amen. All right, so last week, Tim taught about 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. 
talking about elders, humility, and dependence. And today, I have the privilege of closing out the book of 1 Peter with chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. I know, three whole verses. And basically, it's just some random greetings, mentions of grace, love, and peace. Awesome. Yeah, that's all we need to know. So see you at 11.30 for the Zoom call. Okay, but actually, that's normally how I tend to treat these final verses, just some ending credits that don't really matter. But I hope that you treasure these final words that Peter had to the dispersed and persecuted church as much as I have these past few weeks. So, starting in verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So, by Silvanus. Uh, most commentators think that this means that Peter had Silvanus help with the creation of this letter. Probably as a scribe, similar to how we think that the Gospel of Mark was written. A faithful brother as I regard him. So, Peter trusted Silvanus and thought it important to tell us. I would also note that lots of other people trusted Silvanus, also known as Silas. He was sent by the Jerusalem Council to validate Paul's message to the Gentiles in Acts 15, where he was noted as a leader among the believers and a prophet. Silvanus also traveled with Paul and helped establish churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. So why note this? Peter probably didn't want people trying to spend time doubting what the letter said. By giving full disclosure about how the letter came about and vouching for Silvanus, he not only added a person to also validate its authenticity, but also answered some questions that people might have had about Peter himself writing a letter. There were some theories that Peter may have been going blind at the time, and it might also help explain the more classical Greek style of writing that would have been odd for Peter as a fisherman to use. So instead of authenticity, what did Peter want his audience to focus on? What did Peter think was so important? And that will pretty much be the topic for the rest of this time, grace. So continuing on in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So the this refers to what Peter has written briefly. Basically, Peter is saying that the entire book of 1 Peter is all about one thing, grace. So if there is one takeaway that Peter had for his audience, one thing that he wanted the persecuted, dispersed, lonely church to understand, it is grace. So church, in this time, where we probably don't feel persecution in the same way as who Peter's talking to, we definitely feel separated and dispersed from our communities. We probably feel overwhelmed and alone more than ever. And so the message for us is the same, grace. So one takeaway that I have for you from this message is grace. Okay, Spencer, it's all about grace. So what even is grace? I'm glad you asked. So raise your hand if you have heard unmerited favor or getting what you don't deserve. Cool. So if this is your first time at CUV, then you have a pass, but otherwise your hand should be up. 
right? These are the definitions that we use to define grace every week. Unmerited favor and getting what you don't deserve. Clearly, we talk about grace a lot, well, because it's in the Bible and is the essence of the gospel. But let us pause and ask ourselves the question, do we really understand grace? I mean, like, really understand grace. You see, grace is one of those things, like love, where if we actually understood grace, our lives would look a lot different. If we truly understood how much we have not merited, we would be more thankful, worshipful, patient, and at peace in our current circumstances. And if we truly understood the full magnitude of God's favor that we have been given, we might be more free with our money, our time, more dancing in the streets, singing praises at the top of our lungs. And when I ask myself that question, do I really understand grace? The answer, if I'm being honest, is not very well. However, I do understand grace just a bit better after studying, praying over this text and talking about it with many of you. And so that's my hope for you as well, that you will understand grace just a little bit more and that you will praise God more, love one another more, and find your peace. And I think one of the reasons that grace is so hard for us to understand is that we are swimming against the culture that we live. Right? I'd say that our society is more ruled on the opposite of grace. Right? Merited favor and getting what you do deserve are what rule. I could list a lot of different examples that come to mind, but two um, would be grades in school and performance reviews at work. Right? In school, right, you do well on a test, you receive a good grade. If you, at work, ship a project that makes the company a lot of money, you get a raise. That's how things work. And especially in the Bay Area, that's the case where we pride ourselves on being a meritocracy. And a meritocracy basically means a system where you merit or earn any power or status. Right? So even by the world standards, we live in a very merit-based society. So what is God's kingdom then? It's, I would still say it's a meritocracy, but it's based on the merits of one man who passed every test of God's perfect law and finished the only work worth completing, defeating sin and death by hanging on a cross and rising again. Now that is the meritocracy that we should live in. All right, so clearly it's hard for us to understand grace by looking at our society, but by God's grace, we have the very word of God, a portion of which was written by Peter about the very topic of grace, specifically the true grace of God. So what does Peter say is the true grace of God? What can I learn as a Bay Area tech worker predisposed to misunderstand grace? And what can you learn about grace that you didn't know before? And so to help us understand more of this true grace of God, let's look back through 1 Peter at some of the other uses of the word grace to see what he's talking about. I'll touch on four different passages and highlight four characteristics of the true grace of God. All right, so characteristic one, grace grows. So chapter one, verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
grace can be multiplied. Peter desired to see the churches experience more grace. He did not see grace as static, but rather something that grows over time. We don't ever stop needing more grace, more unmerited favor, nor should we stop desiring more grace. And it's tragic when grace is treated like it ended at the cross. When grace becomes something I learned in middle in Sunday school, and that's about it. But sometimes it's hard to see that grace grow if we're not looking for it. So where do we look? Well, starting in the first part of this verse. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God. God knows. He has a plan. He is the one in charge. And if we look for his plan in our lives, in our brothers' and sisters' lives, we will see how grace has grown. I know that I like to be in charge and make plans, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. But sometimes those plans don't work out, and it really sucks in the moment. But looking back, right, it is often very clear to see that it was actually in our favor that God's plan was not our plan. Continuing on, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So sanctification is the work that the Holy Spirit does in us to make us look more like Christ. So when you see yourself or someone close to you look surprisingly more like Jesus, that's grace multiplying. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve to look more like Christ. But how sweet it is to have that promise of sanctification and to see it happen. For obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, we experience grace even in our ability to obey Christ's commands, right? Grace growth can be seen when we're actually able to love our neighbor as ourself. And finally, for the sprinkling with his blood. How sweet is it that our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ? Even sweeter is our continued repentance, the opportunity to turn from the sin in our lives. So again, grace is not static. Grace grows. So CV, let us look forward to, pray for, and rejoice in the grace multiplied to us. Characteristic two, grace is the focus. So chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, let you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can think of this preparing for action as a runner getting ready for a race. And since every good coronavirus sermon needs a running metaphor, I will take you back to elementary school days where I was super cool because I was fast. My running form, however, not so much. You see, if you flip your head from side to side like this, it looks like you're running faster, but you're not actually, right? And that's kind of what happens, well, that's kind of what happens when we aren't prepared, when we aren't sober, when we aren't running straight ahead, focused on the future grace. Instead, we're constantly turning our heads side to side, looking at what Peter is warning against in the following verse the passions of your former ignorance. So money, pride, video games, I'm super cool. Like we think that we can run after grace and all the other things that we want. But if we run like that, A, 
will probably be slow. B, we'll probably get lost. And C, we'll probably miss the devil, the lion seeking to devour us, as Tim talked about last week. So CUV, let us be prepared and run this race well, focused on the future grace when Christ comes back and not our former passions. Characteristic three, grace suffers well. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we've talked a lot about suffering in this series. But how does this true grace of God I've been talking about relate to that suffering? What does unmerited favor mean to those who are fleeing, literally being burned alive in Rome? And how do you do good when faced with so much evil? You look to Jesus. His suffering was the ultimate act of grace, taking the death that we deserved, and we got the life that he deserved. Right? He kept his eyes on God, who judges justly, just as we can keep our eyes on him. He suffered well, so that we can too. Characteristic four, grace breaks cycles of destruction. So likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Chapter three, verse seven. So Mike and Karen did a great job tackling this verse a couple weeks back. And if you have questions, and I know that I certainly did, definitely go back and watch that. But something that I found helpful when studying this verse was that Peter was probably speaking directly to problems in marriage that he saw around him and even in his own. And I don't have any experience in marriage, but it seems like what he's describing is a pretty vicious cycle of husbands not understanding their wives and wives not respecting their husbands, right? The actions of one leads to reaction from the other in this, again, terrible downward spiral, and who started it ceases to matter. And to remedy seemingly hopeless marriages or to keep them from getting there, Peter is calling the husbands to understand, honor, and pray for their wives based on an understanding of grace. See, grace is what breaks these cycles of destruction. And I don't know about you, but I've seen some pretty sad cycles of destruction in the past few months, and they're not likely to end soon. And it's easy to pick a side, right, and to fight from there. But I think if we honestly look at the situation, right, both sides are right and both sides are wrong in some way. But it results in this endless depressing cycle, right? And, but, but consider, actually, consider this, that Peter calls upon grace to break the cycle of destructive relationships between husband and wife. And Jesus broke the ultimate cycle of sin and death with his act of grace, right? So I think that the power of grace, this, this grace, is what can actually break these cycles of destruction that we see in the world. 
Right, so CB, let us pray for and show this grace to the world that desperately needs it. All right, so to recap, the four characteristics of the true grace of God are grace grows, grace is the focus, grace suffers well, and grace breaks cycles of destruction. Sweet. So hopefully we have a better understanding of the true grace of God that Peter is trying to communicate to us. But now what? How can we apply that grace in our lives? Well, let's look back at our passage for the day. Again, chapter 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhort is an interesting word. Quick online Oxford definition. Strongly encourage or urge someone to do something. So is this exhorting, encouraging to do something in contradiction with grace, which is by definition unmerited or we didn't do anything? This is an important question, right? Because First Peter has over 35 of these do something or imperative statements. And I think Peter is calling his listeners to remember that everything that we do is enabled and motivated by grace. Peter is reminding us to view these do-somethings in light of grace, that following the commands does not grant forgiveness, but that the power of grace enables us to fulfill them. So, for example, 1 Peter 1, 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This seems to be a pretty tall order. But if we see it through the lens of grace, our holiness is a gift of grace based on Christ's holiness. Instead of an impossible task to be as holy as God is holy on our own strength. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says this well, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right, again, we see that from grace, the unmerited gift of God flows good works, not the other way around. So when we're reading the commands of Scripture, or encouraging one another with them, let us remember that grace is what fuels obedience. Okay, so we talked about exhorting in light of the true grace of God, but what about this declaring the true grace of God? So the declare used in ESV is declare as testimony, which is why the NIV translates declaring as testifying. So what can we learn about testifying of the true grace of God? Well, it's important that the way that we communicate about grace comes from experiencing it firsthand. Right? Peter was not some stuffy theology professor talking about grace in an abstract sense. Right? He experienced grace in a big way. He betrayed Christ by denying him three times before his death. Yet, Jesus redeemed him, entrusting him to feed his sheep, as Tim talked about last week. And this is why I appreciate COV, because I've never been part of a church that so clearly testifies about the grace in their lives. That we understand that we are simple beggars and how sweet the taste of grace is. And that's the perspective from which we should talk about grace. So another great example of a Christian who testified about grace was John Newton. 
who was once a slave ship captain turned clergyman, hymnist, abolitionist. You may have heard this one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton had tasted the sweetness of the sound of grace. He knew what a wretch he was and how lost he was and the comfort of being found in grace and the power of grace to help him see clearly for the first time. This is the anthem of the Christian, telling the story of how we tasted grace, lost but now found, blind but now see. Unfortunately, not everyone understands grace. So continuing in verse 12 again, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So if there's a true grace, then there's probably also a false grace that we should look out for. There's grace preached that is false grace, grace not from God, but from man. People get it wrong. One way that you could sum up grace is pardon and power. So pardon or forgiveness for our sins because of Christ's death and resurrection and the power of new life in Christ. And both the pardon and power of grace can be misunderstood. So the legalist misunderstands the pardon of grace. They try to contribute to their own salvation to earn their forgiveness, and they forget that we were dead before grace. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? The thing about dead people is they really can't do anything, much less contribute to being saved. And it is only by grace that we can now have this new life in Christ. But the prosperity gospel misunderstands this new life in Christ, the power of grace. You see, prosperity gospel says grace lets me do whatever I want. Grace is just a pardon, but has no sanctifying, obedience-enabling, humbling power in your life. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude is also calling us to stand firm in the faith, in the grace on which it is built, to contend for it against those who would say grace enables a life of sensuality and lawlessness. That grace denies Christ, our Master and Lord, by making it all about us and what we want. And that grace actually hasn't saved us from our problem of worshiping ourselves. So CUV, let us not forget who was the one who paid for our pardon in full, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. And let us not deny him and his sacrifice by treating grace as an excuse to just keep worshiping ourselves. On that light note, let's continue in the passage to something more encouraging, that those saved by grace are marked by love. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. All right, so let me give an answer to the questions that you might have had right off the bat. 
So one, who is she? Who's that Babylon? So this is probably a reference to the church in Rome. Two, which Mark is this? This Mark is probably John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And three, during coronavirus, what is the correct method to greet one another with the kiss of love? Well, to answer that one, I'll have Keith come over here for a demonstration. No, okay, well, I'm actually totally in here by myself. Uh, but to be serious, what can we take away from this cultural greeting from 2000 years ago? Right, the key word here is love. I'm not sure kissing everyone today would go over super well, especially during coronavirus, right? That's not very loving. And I think what Peter is trying to say here is that the interactions of the church, chosen by God and saved by grace, should be characterized by love. And he says this throughout the letter. So chapter 1, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And last but not least, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good shepherd, good stewards of God's varied grace. Chapter 4, verse 8. So as we can see from this last verse, grace is not just for the individual. Grace isn't just unmerited favor for ourselves, but we have been given gifts to show God's unmerited favor to our brothers and sisters. But how do we serve one another from so far apart? We probably feel more powerless to help and more in need of that help than ever. So what an opportunity for God to give us grace to serve one another and give him glory. Right? It'll be harder than normal, and I don't really know what that looks like for your gifts. But right now, a lot of it, I think, is simply reminding each other. As Daniel Delwood said in the takeaways last week, we are not alone. How can you show someone today that they're not alone? Maybe a text or a call or FaceTime, or reading them a book, or sending them a handwritten letter, or a meal, or a poem, or playing an online game with them, or even a sermon slide. You are not alone. And one last thing that I want to say about loving one another is that we also need humility to receive grace. Right, chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I love the imagery of clothing yourself in humility, right? The opposite of clothing yourself in humility is clothing yourself in pride. And I know that for myself, that pride often looks like not asking for help. And right now, we all need help. And what an opportunity to put on humility and ask for help from your grace-empowered brothers and sisters. So I have a story from two weekends ago that really drilled this into me. So I was swimming up at Lake Tahoe with some people from my bubble, and I had the great idea to swim to a group of rocks down the way. Now it turns out that it was a little bit further, a little choppier, and altitude was a bit higher, 
and my swimming abilities were quite a bit lower than I had initially thought. But I only realized this right halfway through and I was already pretty tired. And so by three quarters of the way, I was frantically swimming on my back and then switching to look and see if I would make it any closer. And my limbs were feeling like lead. My breath was not able to pull in enough air and I started to panic. But by God's grace, I was able to put down my pride and to ask a buddy, Drew, swimming near me for help. And he pushed me the rest of the way to the rocks. And as I was laying on my back on a rock, breathing heavily for at least 10 minutes, I was thinking two things. One, I thank God that I was humble enough to ask for help. And it's pretty embarrassing to admit that you were close to drowning. And two, I thank God that Drew was a much more gifted swimmer than I was. So for an application, let's let our understanding of grace motivate us to love one another and be humble enough to let ourselves be served by one another. And finally, finishing out the book of 1 Peter, peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's a lot of suffering right now. And we all want peace, which seems at times to be impossible to find. It seems every time I look at the news, something new is threatening the horizon. Maybe you're feeling the struggle of being separated from loved ones or the strain of being around them too much. But maybe we're looking in the wrong places for peace. You see, grace always precedes peace in the traditional greeting, grace and peace be with you used throughout scripture, and Peter is not saying anything different here. The overflow of the true grace of God is marked not only by loving one another, but also by peace of being in Christ. So no matter if you face death for worshiping him or are anxious from being stuck inside for days on end, that peace is still there. Peace follows and flows from grace. That's all I got. So wherever you are, and whenever you're watching this, peace be with you. May you love one another in gifts and humility, and may you taste the amazingly true grace of God.